Hi there. Welcome to the American Food Roots podcast. I'm Domenica Marchetti, and I'm here with our friend and contributor, Peter Ogburn. Hi, Peter. Hi, Domenica. This is so exciting that you're here. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here. I am kind of a novice to radio or podcasts, but I did take a class on radio uh, when I was at Columbia Journalism School, and I loved it. So it's really fun to be back in the seat here. And You're already a natural. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, as usual, we are here to talk about why we eat what we eat, because that's what American Food Roots is all about. And um, wow, I can't think of a better week in which to explore the meaning of food, because it's Passover and Holy Week leading up to Easter. So it's a week in which the foods that many of us are eating or preparing to eat are just filled with symbolism. And I think these holidays in particular, it's so cool to have these special dishes that are so emblematic of a holiday. Yeah, absolutely. Holiday, family, you know, it's spring, rebirth, renewal, eggs, right? Um, (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. So Monday night was the first night of Passover. And a lot of my friends have been posting their pictures of their Passover Seder dishes on, on Instagram. And so um, I myself have only had the pleasure of attending a Seder once. And I confess, I don't know that much about <laughs> it, but I know that each food on the plate is highly symbolic um, from the egg uh, to the bitter herbs that I, I believe symbolize um, the bitterness of slavery. And, um, but I want to focus on the matzah, the unleavened bread that um, I guess it's unleavened because the Jews were hurrying to escape slavery and their bread dough did not have time to rise. And so that's how we came up with matzah. Matzah itself is relatively new to me, I just cooked with it for the first time about a year ago. Oh, so uh, so this is a whole new world. Yeah, to me. well, it's it's an ancient world for many people. It's a whole new world <laughs> to you and me. But and I, I had an exchange on Twitter with somebody because we both actually like matzah slathered with butter and then sprinkled with salt. I could do that, which is probably not the way to eat it, but <laughs> it's really good. It's okay, it's all right. <laughs> but I want to tell you about something called vermatzah. What's that? It's matzah from Vermont. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, and it is actually a whole grain, small batch artisan matzah, and it's made at a bakery called Naga Bakehouse. Um, This bakery is owned by a family, the Freelich family, and Doug Freelich and his wife, Judy, and their two kids mix and shape the matzah by hand, and they bake it in an open fire. So this matzah is nothing like your supermarket matzah. You know, when I think of matzah, I think of those sheets of those white rectangular sheets that are dimpled. And um, this matzah is nothing like that. It's actually round. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's round and more brown, and it's not made with, you know, all-purpose bleached flour. It's made with ancient grains, and these are grains that they grow um, for their bakery. They make a variety of whole-grain breads, and um, and one of the things that they make is this whole-grain matzah. Um, they use a grain called emmer, which in Italian is known as farro. And, in fact, foodies probably know farro because... We now make farro risotto and farro salad, and I actually make a farro pudding. But um, but this grain, emmer, was said to have nourished the Roman troops, and it's been around for thousands of years. So the Freelich family um, 
make this wonderful, um, you know, uh, locally uh, made matzah, and they ship it all then over the country um, at Passover time. So, uh, so it's round and it's dimpled, and they make it in these small batches over an open fire, just as it was done thousands of years ago. And I thought, wow, this is so cool that this family up in Vermont um, is is doing this and they're bringing back these old world traditions and giving us, you know, an alternative to that kind of cardboardy supermarket matzo bread. I love the sound of this. And plus, it's Vermatza, so, I mean, you could totally just dump maple syrup all over it. <laughs> well, you could. Like, that's where my head went immediately. Oh, boy. Yeah. Right? Uh, that's Vermatza? Yes. I was going to say you could slather that with Vermont butter or, you know, um, some Vermont, good Vermont cheese. But absolutely, maple syrup. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, and we have a recipe, actually, for matzo bray on our website, AmericanFoodRoots.com. And it's adapted from a recipe by Joan Nathan, um, who's a wonderful cookbook author. And so matzo bray is basically matzos, eggs, salt and pepper, butter, and then um, you can top it with you, – you mix it all up and you, you cook it kind of like you would scrambled eggs. And then you top it with either cinnamon sugar or jam or maple syrup. Maple syrup. <laughs> maple syrup. That's where it's at. I'm yeah, telling you. absolutely. But this makes me think of another story that we had Recently on um, on American Food Roots, we have a feature called My American Roots in which people tell us their food memories or share a favorite recipe. And so this is a video that we put up every week or so. And um, we put up recently this wonderful video by a gentleman from uh, Brooklyn, Harry Rosenblum. And he recalled a trip that he took as a child to Iowa. His family was from New York, but they had friends in Iowa, and um, this friend was a minister, and he invited the Rosenblum family out to Iowa to um, prepare a Passover Seder for the congregation because Good Friday and Passover, the first night of Passover, happened to coincide that year. So this was some years mm. ago when, when um, Harry was a child. So he has very fond memories of this trip, including arriving um, – in Iowa to the town of Emmitsburg and, you know, population um, 3,900 people. And they were welcomed just, you know, with open arms by the community. And there was a story in the local paper about them with the headline, Jews come to Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's amazing. (laughs) Which might not go over so well today. I don't think so. But but he (laughs) recalls it very fondly in this video. And he talks about how they went to the supermarket to get the ingredients to make the traditional um, Seder plates for the congregation. And Nothing was there. They did not have, you know, gefilte fish. They didn't have matzo, and they didn't have um, a horseradish, among other things. What they did have plenty of, though, was Manischewitz Concord grape wine. Oh no! Now I've heard horror stories about Manischewitz. So I've never had it. I was hoping you had. Okay, no, I've never had it. Okay, I have drink. Are I have... you more of a Boone's farm? <laughs> yes, it's exactly. I was all Strawberry Hill. Yeah. Uh, I have had friends who told me, in fact, just earlier today, who told me that Manischewitz is kind of like drinking from the syrup container at IHOP. It's super sweet wow. and really gross, just cloying, nasty, and oh. you get a little bit of a buzz off of it. So I I don't – I think maybe I've been to an IHOP once. <laughs> <laughs> 
It, is, but, it all comes back to maple syrup yeah, to me. It, exactly. You know? <laughs> it all comes back to maple syrup. So anyway, their family pre- prepared this traditional Seder, and it was, is a, it was a wonderful experience. And, and he uh, told us all about that on our My American um, Roots video. Cool. So now we're going to move on. I think we're going to get as far away from matzah as we possibly can. Okay. Um, and by that, I mean we're going to talk about pizza rustica, which is an Italian Easter tradition. And it is the way that many Italian families, particularly families from central and southern Italy, break the Lenten fast, even if no fasting has actually taken place, as in my house. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best, right? I mean, it's a wonderful tradition, especially yeah, I, if you don't observe. I always start with good intentions. You know, I, there's always so many things I want to give up. Um, but there's always next year, right? Exactly. So, um, um, exactly. But as you know, historically, no meat consumed from the beginning of Lent until Easter. And so many Italians break the Easter, the uh, the Lenten fast with something called pizza rustica. And um, by that, I don't mean a flat saucer topped with tomato sauce. Pizza rustica is something completely different. And it is basically a tort um, that is it's a pastry shell and it's it's filled with... Oh my goodness! Maybe a half a dozen different kinds of cheeses. This is my my mother's recipe, and it's actually on our website, American Food Roots. And it's uh, you know got Parmigiano and mozzarella and provolone and ricotta and something called basket cheese, which uh, you know you can. I've form- never heard of basket cheese. Okay, so you got to tell me about basket yeah, cheese. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So basket cheese magically appears in Italian delis like the week before Easter, and then it magically disappears right afterwards. And it's it's called basket cheese because it's a fresh cheese, and it's drained in these plastic, probably once upon a time wicker or something, baskets. And so it takes on the shape of the basket. Near as I can tell, it's probably... Um, the American version of maybe sheep's milk ricotta, and in regions such as Abruzzo, where my family's come uh, comes from, uh, sheep's milk ricotta is is everywhere, and it's wonderful. And it, and you know, it would be in my pizza rustica if I could find it, but um, but I use cow's milk ricotta because that's what we can find. But I can find this basket cheese, which is like a fresh cow's milk cheese, um, and it, it's either uh, you know our rendition of. Um, sheep's milk ricotta or something called primo sale, which is another fresh cheese that is drained in baskets and very lightly salted. So um, that is what basket cheese, I believe, is. And so basket cheese and ricotta all go into this mix, and then you add diced salumi, um, prosciutto, mortadella, soppressata, salami, um, you know, spicy salami, whatever region you come from in Italy, there are probably different kinds of cured meats that would go into your pizza rustica. And then you top it with more um, pastry and you bake it until it all becomes fused together. Okay. I just want to make sure I got this right. So you're hitting all my major food groups. Yeah. Uh, Pie crust. (laughs) Yes. uh, Tons of different cheeses and heavily salted pork products. Yes. Exactly. I'm in. And I brought you a little piece. This looks so good. And I want you to taste it and tell me what you All think. Right. I'm going to have a bite. So I'm, I'm going to, in. Uh, yeah, I'm you go in. in and um, and so, um, so this is what my mother traditionally made every year for Easter. And... I looked forward to this stuff more than I looked forward to all the chocolate eggs and things in my Easter basket. You know, the jelly beans, the marshmallow peeps. 
That is so good. Isn't that good? That is Salty delicious. So yes, it's say. so good. Yeah. Like seriously, forget the the Easter eggs. Yeah. And the chocolate bunnies. Yeah. I want that in my Easter basket. So that that's something that um, I make for my family every year, and uh, so that's kind of like the precursor to the meal. The meal itself is usually um, roast lamb, um, but I know that in many homes, ham is the centerpiece of the Easter table. So, um, you know, it, it all depends, I guess, on, on where you come from. So I have a tradition in my house that I started now that I have, have two uh, boys. Uh, we have started doing, for Easter, we do rabbit and dumplings. So we do, we get a fresh rabbit. We break it down and we braise it and we make like a rabbit and dumpling. So we eat the Easter bunny. That's Easter. so interesting. So and I and I <laughs> it's a little see twisted. <laughs> well, I see more Americans eating rabbit and wow. it's a very popular dish in in Italy, especially. Um, you know, I mentioned Abruzzo, where my family is from, in the mountains of Abruzzo, uh, we eat a lot of rabbit and it's roasted or fried. Um, you know, broken up in into pieces and, and uh, breaded and and fried. Mm-hmm. And I always associate it with autumnal meals, mm-hmm. um, oddly, but, um, but obviously because of the Easter and the Easter bunny reference. Um, so how do your boys feel about this? They're good with it. They love it. They love the freaky aspect of the fact that we're eating the Easter bunny. They just kind of like the gross out. <laughs> well, they're boys, right? Yeah, exactly. Of they're totally boys. So, you know, we, we, it's a whole skinned rabbit that we bring home. And so they get to watch as we dismember it and and break it down to cook and they get a real kick out of it. Well, I think that's fantastic because they know where their food is coming that's from. That's right. And that's, that's right. incredibly important. Um, and I actually, we don't eat a lot of rabbit at my house, but I when I do make it or when we have it, you know, when we're in Italy, I really enjoy it because um, it's sort of like a cross between turkey and chicken and pork you know it's sort of like chicken with oomph you know, mm-hmm. the way I think totally of it. that's and, a really good way to put it yeah i really enjoy it so i'm assuming that your um, easter rabbit tradition is not something that you picked up in your hometown of charleston <laughs> south carolina no no that's not i didn't pick it up there but i'm glad to hear you mention charleston well i'm mentioning charleston because it's my new fra- favorite place i'm probably the last person on earth to discover it right <laughs> <laughs> but i just got back there I was I, I was there teaching a cooking class at um, Southern Season, which recently opened in, in, across the bridge in Mount Pleasant. Mm-hmm. And I have been wanting to go to Charleston for so long. And boy, I just want to say, whatever possessed you to move here? Because <laughs> that is heaven on earth. I know. It's a classic story. I was just a jerk of a teenager. And I just said, I want to move away from my hometown. And now that I've grown up somewhat and have a family, all I can think is, boy, it'd be great to live in a place like oh, Charleston. Wow. What a fabulous. It's beautiful. I mean, I sort of think of it as a cross between um, New Orleans and Key West and mm. Old Town Alexandria with a little bit of Mackinac Island sprinkled in and maybe Boston, too, for that's, the colonial. Um. <laughs> that's very that's very well put, actually. I thought about outsider. that one for yeah. a while. Yeah, well I, I, I was um, <laughs> messaging my husband when I was down there because, um, alas, my family was not able to come with me. And I was like, you should see this place. And, <laughs> um, but uh, but obviously a fabulous food town. And you've written about Charleston a little bit for American food roots. I love your pieces. And I especially loved your piece on the Charleston oyster roast, which uh, sadly I did not get to experience when I was there. It's a great experience. Uh, You know, oysters grow all over Charleston. 
And the way that you pull them up are not the way that you see oysters in the restaurants, right? They, they're not beautiful little jewels right. of tasty morsels of seafood. They, cut, they grow in big, knobby, scary-looking clusters. And so the best way to go about eating them is you start a fire and you put a big piece of sheet metal over the fire and you throw the oyster clusters down on top of that sheet and you cover them with a burlap sack from which they came from. If you buy them in a burlap sack, you just wet it down with a hose and throw it on top of the oysters and they sort of steam roast and oh, there's usually so a big table out in the middle of nowhere, and someone's just sh- literally with a shovel shoveling oysters onto the table. Wow. And you just dive in. Everybody just jumps into it. So do you put anything on them, or you just eat them right out of the shells just like that with their liquor? It's a little bit of that. Usually there are a couple of sleeves of saltine crackers. Saltines. Or you could use around. matzah, maybe. <laughs> you, could use, you could totally use matzah. Uh, there's some hot sauce laying around. Some people do cocktail sauce. But for the most part, it's just... Uh, getting them right out of the shell and putting them on the cracker. Oh, that just sounds like heaven. Well, I'm going to have to go back down so I can experience that. In fact, what's interesting is that, you know, I went to Charleston with this idea that I was going to be tasting fabulous low country food. And where do I end up? At an Italian restaurant (laughs) called Luca. And I'm really picky about Italian restaurants. And I, unless I'm in Italy, I rarely, um, go eat out at Italian restaurants because I know the food's never going to be as good as my mama's, right? That's right. Um, But I ended up at this little Italian restaurant called Luca. I I met a friend there and she's from Charleston and um, and we had originally had reservations at a, um, I don't know, famous Charleston seafood place and I drove down... (laughs) Don't ask me why I decided to drive down eight hours, but um, but I got there a little bit late, so um, so our original reservations we missed, but um, but Luca I found was wonderful, um, really good kind of modern Italian food that tries to um, stay true to the I guess the authentic spirit of Italian cooking. I had really delicious tortellini and they looked like teeny tiny business letters um, and they were filled with scrambled eggs and Parmigiano cheese. Oh, Um, oh, so good. And then um, I had fried pan fried sweet breads, which I don't know that I've ever had before. And I, you know, I'm not quite sure what Oregon it is. And I don't think I want to know. I'm not much for Oregon. Don't ask. Damn. It was was good. It was good. Um, (laughs) The next day, I stopped in to see my friend Graham Daly, who is the chef at the Peninsula Grill um, oh, yes. in downtown Charleston. What a fabulous place that is. And Graham and I got to know each other on Instagram, of all places. And so um, he saw a picture that I, I put up on Instagram, and he asked, he said, hey, why don't you come on by? And I said, hey, okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> duh, that's a no-brainer. So, um, so I went by, and um, and it's just such a lovely place. And I know you're familiar with it, right? Oh, very familiar with it. So, yeah, in fact, uh, when, when uh, I met my wife when she was going to school at College of Charleston, and she had an apartment just down the way – from Peninsula Grill, and so we would we'd go out walking, and we'd walk past every night, and we would always say like, "We should go there sometime." Someday, yeah. But it's like totally, it's like a special occasion. Yeah, restaurant not really for a college, college students <laughs> budget. Yeah. And so we just kept saying like, "Oh, we we should go, we should go." And so finally, for a five year anniversary, we went to Peninsula Grill, and it was so good. Oh, that's it was so, great! So good. What a way to celebrate a five year anniversary. So, did you have coconut cake while you were there? I did have the coconut cake. And I have to say, I hate coconut. <laughs> I hate coconut. I think it tastes like suntan lotion. 
But this coconut cake is so good. It is. It's and it so tastes nothing good. like suntan lotion. No, it doesn't so, <laughs> at all. <laughs> so I went there, and they were, and they, indeed, they are famous for their coconut cake. They've been making it ever since um, the Peninsula Grill opened in, in 1997. And it is now, I think, world famous. So I got there, and, and Graham gave me a tour of the kitchens. And um, there was somebody who was actually slicing up the coconut cake and putting it in these plastic clamshell containers to, you know, to freeze and then send out for shipping. And um, he was so kind. He gave me a slice of this coconut cake. Oh, wow. And um, he said, you know, <laughs> when you eat it, make sure it's it's at room temperature. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of dragged it around with me for the afternoon and took it to my um, cooking class. And the irony of teaching cooking classes is you spend, you know, a couple of hours prepping and then two or three hours cooking for the class. But you're starving by the end because you haven't <laughs> eaten anything. You've done all this work and feed everybody So else. after my cooking class, um, I went back to my hotel room and I just ate this huge piece of delicious 12-layer fluffy coconut cake for dinner and dessert. It was it was really, a hell of a dinner. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. And, um, you know, there's a recipe for it um, in his cookbook. And I think I may have to post it on American Food Roots because um, I want to tackle this thing one yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. good yeah. luck. It was So um, Charleston is one place I am definitely going to be returning to. It was just such a great experience. And, um, you know, maybe who knows, someday you'll uh, you'll end up back there. Or you said College of Charleston. I have a kid who's college bound pretty soon i think yeah you can start nudging nudging into uh, college of charleston's direction yeah. yeah so that's all we have time for today folks peter always a pleasure to talk with you nice job um, thanks for coming in you can find our recipes and stories at americanfoodroots.com on twitter at amer foodroots and also we are on facebook and instagram see you there mm-hmm.